Hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. When we think of the word chaplain, we think of people responsible for spiritual and pastoral dimensions in some form of institution or government context. Military chaplains, hospital chaplains, hospice chaplains. There are even some contexts where there are corporate chaplains. For this episode, we are going to focus upon prison chaplains. I have as my guest today three people who are or have been chaplains in the context of incarceration facilities. They are the Reverend Carol Dalton, the Reverend Nancy Hastings Sehested, and the Reverend Jody Griffin. Carol has been for the past 15 years and continues to be chaplain at Western Correctional Center for Women in Swannanoa, North Carolina. Although working within a state prison facility, she is employed by the nonprofit Ministry for Hope. Nancy is a retired pastor and served as prison chaplain from 2000 to 2003 at Avery Mitchell Correctional Institution near Spruce Pine, North Carolina, and from 2003 to 2013, she served at the minimum and maximum security prisons at Marion Correctional Institution in Marion, North Carolina. She wrote a book about her experiences in Mark for Life, a prison chaplain story. Jody is currently pastor of First Baptist Church, Spruce Pine, North Carolina, and served from 2016 to 2022 as community-funded chaplain at Avery Mitchell Correctional Institution. Jody is also a retired United States Reserve and North Carolina National Guard chaplain, where he served in several United States Army and Naval confinement facilities. Carol, Nancy, and Jody are here to help us understand the nature and task of chaplaincy within the prison system. Welcome. Thank you each for being with me today. Well, welcome. Thank you each for being with me today. Why don't we begin uh, by uh, starting with Nancy's question that she uh, proposed that we discuss is, why should we be concerned about prisons? Who wants to start? I'll start just by saying that... um I lived about two miles from Black Mountain Correctional Center for Women for probably 20 years and didn't even know it existed. And wow. I was, um, I, I, knew, I knew I would see these women out with their inmate vests on cleaning the highways and the streets of downtown Black Mountain, but I didn't know where they came from. And I certainly didn't know anything about chaplains in prison. Um, And they have taught me so much. They've taught me about how they came to be there, about especially about recovery from addiction and what what that means and what it looks like. And, And just that there are so many people in prison because of the opioid epidemic and because of the failed war on drugs and um, had no idea that the prison population had skyrocketed over the past 30 years because of that legislation. Um, just so much that I didn't know and and the way I got in there was because I couldn't find anything else. Um, I'd gone to seminary uh, at Gardner-Webb Divinity School as a midlife person and uh, went there thinking I knew what I wanted to do and came out loving everything I had learned and um, but couldn't find a church, and I didn't really know what else that looked like because I wasn't free to move anywhere that I wanted to because my husband had a career here and wandered around in the wilderness for six years, and then finally one day I received two phone calls in one day telling me that there was this one-year interim position available for um, this women's prison that, like I said, was about two miles from my house, if that far, and I went and 
and applied and got it, and I've been there ever since, and that was 15 <laughs> and a third years ago. <laughs> well, one of the first things I learned uh, once I got into prison work is that incarceration often begets incarceration. It becomes generational. Uh, there are a number of uh, offenders, that's the current nomenclature, who um, whose parents were incarcerated. And um, I found this out through ministries that come and try to work with uh, offenders and their families. I was thinking specifically of One Day with God and um, and how, you know, these little children are on a track to join their parents because they don't have their parent at home to parent them, to teach them. and um, Or if the parent, while the parent was at home, they learned things that are going to lead them toward prison. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that why, why prisons? Because if somebody doesn't do something, um, it's only going to get worse. Well, I think that we should all care about prisons, first of all, because the people who are in the prison and the people who work in the prison are part of our human community. And they are people that are in our that have been in our neighborhoods and they are in our uh, in our country all over the place. And we still um, have, five percent of the population and 25 percent of the prison population in the world uh prison is a play is to care about prisons is to care about the um the things that are that what we believe in this country it is we're we're asking the question well what do we really think about crime and punishment what do we really think about making amends and what do we really think about forgiveness and redemption and the possibility of transformation? It is a uh, extremely important place for us all to be asking those questions. And every state budget is very, very huge for uh, supporting our prisons. Um, and so we, we, sh- we certainly have money involved in all of that. <laughs> as well as um, the, the seeing who is sent to prison and who is there is, is, um, is, the other, is another reason why we should care about prisons. What's the percentage of people are there that are from a lower economic uh, class for people who uh, are the uh, African-American in our country as far less of the population but in in our communities but far more in the population in our uh, prisons what does that say and what uh, what does that mean about what our society needs to be looking at in terms of education and jobs and health care and all of those things that all of us uh, need to make make it through life Nancy I just looked up those numbers um, last night for Western North Carolina the uh, 89.9% of the population of Western North Carolina is white, and yet 30% of the population at our facility mm. is black. Mm. Yes. In, in yes. That, and, of course, they're not all from this area, but it's still, it's, and it's, that's held true the whole time I've been there. And, and it, 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 it doesn't make any sense, except that it does, because of the systemic racism within the whole system. Exactly. Uh, and in the lack of resources in the community that, that um, I, th- I just had a young woman this morning speaking at a church with me and she was talking about the numbers of times that she's been to prison and always when she gets out, she has all these dollars hanging over her head that she owes. Yep. Yes. And, and, and people don't even realize you, you you know, you think you get a free lawyer, and it's free lawyer till you get out of prison, and you have to pay the court costs, which includes those lawyer fees. And yep. exactly. people just don't know this. And so it's no wonder people get out, and 
and they have this stress of owing so much money. And that's not even to speak of the people who who owe money back um, for right. drug taxes. Right. Oh, yes. Right. No young woman who was slapped with $250,000 worth of drug taxes. Mm. Taxes on, it, it's as if they take the, the drugs that she was found holding when they arrested her and they tax that as if she whatever they deem the street value would have been if she had actually sold those drugs and that's what she has to pay back yep and Mm. how will she ever do that and how and and especially when you get out and you and you you the best job you can find is is nothing close to a living wage let alone to pay all these these back taxes you see i didn't know that at all Oh yep. yes, they're not. Most get, people they're, don't. They don't get out with just a, a free no. pass. Uh, you and and then the then the difficulty of even finding work because of your record right. is complicated. By yeah. No, no, they can all find a job right now because all you have to have <laughs> is a pulse. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but it's not a very well. Well, and you hear job. and you hear. Oh, prison, three hots in a cot. You know, mm-hmm. they've got it made. They don't have it made. No. They, they don't have it made. They have to pay their restitution. They have to pay their taxes on their, uh, you know, and it, it's it's very difficult. It's a big challenge. Um, and the families suffer mm-hmm. as a result. And the families, yes. Yeah. So. And in North Carolina, we are paying an average of $35,000 per year per prisoner. And there are some, uh, there's almost 40000 prisoners right. in the state. These, these are people, yeah. these are people actually behind bars. We're not even talking about the money involved in, you know, people after they get out and what they have to pay. Right. That's well, Carol, you told a little bit about how you came to be in a chaplain, but Jody and Nancy, how about how you two each became to be a chaplain? Well, you know, I didn't grow up saying I want to be a prison chaplain <laughs> when I grow up. Raise your hand if you, if you did. I actually have never met anybody I that met anybody that said that's what I want to be when I grow up. That's why I said that. But I had been uh, a pastor for 15 years and uh, was at a, in a time when I wanted to seek some other kind of work. And a position came open uh, in, and uh, I thought, well, you know, I am concerned about about our prison system in this country. I'll, I'll do it for a year and just uh, <laughs> kind of uh, get, get some firsthand experience, and then I'll, I'll know stuff. And um, so it, it turned out that I, I got the position, and, I, and it, it, the, the, one of the strange things was that, that uh, I was uh, in a men's prison, and uh, I ended up staying 13 years um, because I found it so meaningful. I found that it made a difference to show up every day. And as hard as it was, um, I, found, I found it to be work that even though I was in a sea of sadness, there would always be the signs of God's, God at work, God's spirit being there. And I wanted to jump in on that action. And a goodness and grace would show up in the strangest of ways. But it was um, it kept kept me alert to how spirit life was uh, was being expressed, and so I I I stayed a long time. Yeah, I actually came to it from a little different angle. I was an army reservist and uh, was a chaplain in the army reserves, and was serving a unit whose primary mission was U.S. confinement, and so uh, because of their mission. Uh, I had the experience of serving in prisons around the country, uh, brief periods of time, uh, 40 days at the most at a time, but still, um, places like uh, Leavenworth wow. yeah, and uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, the regional confinement facility there, and I even did a wow. brief tour through Amazing. the Naval Brig in oh, Charleston. Wow. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> uh, but because I came at it from that angle, I think I had... Um, so many preconceived ideas <laughs> that I really didn't understand what I was getting into. And once you get into it, then it, it just really takes hold of you. It does take hold yeah. of you. And yes. uh, so we moved to uh, the area of the state where I live in uh, Spruce Pine. And 
I had somebody come to me and say, ooh, 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 I want to tell you about this job. And uh, it's a community-funded chaplain. That's a, that's a subject we need to discuss in a little yeah. while, this whole funding for chaplains uh, in the prison system, because it's, well, don't get started. Uh, <laughs> um, so I applied and uh, interviewed and got accepted as the chaplain at Avery Mitchell and then went through the rigorous, really rigorous process of being uh, deemed worthy to enter in. And, uh, and, you know, there's a lot to it. So there is a lot to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you talked about, um, in some of our pre interview conversations, you talked about, um, that there's the conception that most prison, um, prison chaplains are Christian. Mm -hmm. And they're not. So tell us a little more about that. Tell us about the nature of who's a chaplain. North Carolina now recognizes what 16 different religions uh, that they recognize and try to provide uh, religious opportunities for worship. And Does that include the latest two? Yeah, that okay. includes the latest two. I'm, I'm pretty lost, sure that number's I've right. I've lost track. Yeah, it's easy to lose track because it changes. But uh, So you have the need to um, help facilitate religions uh, that you don't have any real familiarity with. And so a big part of it's learning and equipping yourself so that you can uh, serve those individuals that way by providing for their spiritual needs uh, in a way that's meaningful and helpful. So, <laughs> yep. so the, um, it's, it's been my experience that the majority, of, well, for one thing, we don't really know each other as chaplains. Mm -mm. Um, Jody and I got to know each other in a roundabout sort of way because we're from the same part of the country and uh, connected on Facebook. I've known Nancy for a long time because she was the person I would call and say, help, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and uh, But as far as knowing other chaplains, I don't, really, I don't really know the people scattered across the state. What I see is that we have a variety of faiths represented in the inmate population but the majority of the people i run into who are chaplains are christian and trying to navigate that trying trying to trying to do like you said to understand what their needs are and i've used this phrase for a long time i actually learned it from my brother who was a hospice chaplain i'm there to help a buddhist be the best buddhist a buddhist can be amen that's my that's my job and that means that I might I might need to learn some things from that person who's the resident. I, yeah, I think that um, that probably the majority of of chaplains are Christian, uh, just because of the, the nature of the, our state that we're in. But um, there are Muslim chaplains and American yep. Indian chaplains, yep. and there are certainly people that we draw from to understand the core. Of, of each of the different faiths that, that we facilitate for, for our facilitating their services. So um, at the place that I served, there were Christians and Muslims, Rastafarians, Wiccans, Asatru, uh, American Indians, and Buddhist. And uh, uh, what I discovered was at the core of, of most religious groups, there is some form of the golden rule. And mm -hmm. with that, we can do a lot of encouragement of people being on a good, faithful path in the religious uh, uh, affiliation that they have chosen. And it's grounded in respect, in my right. opinion. I mean, as a chaplain, I, I had no less respect for any faith group than I do for the Christians. Being a Christian minister, but I'm the type of Christian minister who understands that it takes all of us. That's right. And we're all children of God in some sense or understanding. So um, I, you know, I think that's one of the key ingredients to being successful in chaplain ministry is being able to say, that's their path. My responsibility, my thrill really is to make it possible for them to practice. And a lot, don't, don't you find a lot of times it's the real job becomes to to uh, educate the staff 
and to help them to also have that same that respect. respect. Yes. Amen. Um, Preach, sister. Right. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. Well, what did each of you tend to do in your daily work? You know, what was the kind of spectrum of activities that you were responsible for doing? David, I talked to my mother right before I walk in every morning. She's in an ex- um, assisted living place in Georgia. And so I call her and check on her, make sure she's up and at them. And so every morning she'll ask me, what are you doing today? And I said, well, I'm going to walk in here and find out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so you walk in, you walk in, you go through the gatehouse. And if somebody says, oh, chaplain, you're here, you know, it's going to be a long day. <laughs> 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 because there's been some kind of a crisis that you're needed for. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's really some days it's, it's walking from crisis to crisis. Um, oftentimes that's because someone has had a family member to die or they found out someone is in the hospital or not expected to live or a child has been in a wreck or, um, numerous things. And some days I walk in and I look around and nobody's there to grab me and I run for the chapel and I sit there and try and get caught up on stuff until somebody discovers that I'm there and then there's (laughs) everything in between. (laughs) Yeah, for me, it was uh, get to work, get through the gatehouse, okay, (laughs) and, uh, you know, not have to take too too many things back to the car. Um, And to have the opportunity just to, first of all, to interact with the staff uh, to check on them and make sure that they're okay. Um, and there are two kinds of staff, really. You have program staff and you have custody staff. So you're dealing with custody staff who who are responsible more for the direct uh, supervision of the offenders. Then you have the program staff uh, who are responsible for the programs uh, that the offenders participate in, education um, and religion and many, many other programs. So um, you, that would generally be my start to the day. I'd go drink all their coffee <laughs> and, uh, and, and then use that Good energy. Idea. I don't know how that works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh y'all don't know anything about <laughs> oh, that. Right. <laughs> and then use that energy to, uh, you know, meet the needs. Generally, where at Avery Mitchell, uh, since I was a community-funded chaplain, I had some boundaries that were set for me, and one of those boundaries was that I could not go start a conversation. I responded to conversations. Really? Yep. Primarily with, through with who? You couldn't start a conversation offenders, with offenders. the offenders. Yeah, yeah. Oh my. Generally goodness. through uh, request forms. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. So I would get a written request mm-hmm. form. I have a pretty good stack in my mailbox, and then I would take that stack and start going through it. And uh, a lot of it was. Uh, what I call fluff, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which you probably get what I mean by that, <laughs> and um, and then try to discern those that needed the most to be, like a triage. That's what I call it, it's triage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, and then take that list from the triage that seemed to be the most pressing needs and begin to address them one at a time. Mm-hmm. So, and again, it's by their initiation. So, um. I really found, I know we all, we all said, ooh, but I, I really found that to be useful for me. I'm sure. Because I knew that the needs that I was responding to were expressed needs. So I wasn't having to discover it by digging into their, you know, personal life or anything. They they generally came to me first. You had a, you had a much larger population than we did. Oh, yeah. yeah. I when mean, I started, it was about 850, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's a lot different than 300. Yeah. It's still a, a sizable congregation. To it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Be, uh, and, an, and an unhealthy congregation. Past, pastoral care, too. And that's, many that's ways, yeah. offenders. That's not counting staff. Right. Uh, so if you add in 250 staff, then you're talking about a 1,000-member congregation that mm-hmm. you're responsible for. Yeah. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And you have to do that triage. Well, Nancy, mm-hmm. you introduced mm-hmm. that term, congregation. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes I thought about it that way. That I was this was this was a congregation that I was serving, and so I and that meant that I cared about um, the offenders as well as staff, as well as the volunteers, as well as the families who are usually for me were on the other end of the phone, 
and telling me about a crisis or a death in the family. And so I, I felt like I, I was also in some ways pastoring uh, the heartache on the, uh, the, or the, uh, mm-hmm. on the other end of the, that phone. Um, and so, our, you know, our life as chaplains is a life of interruption. And we, uh, we would show up, and even though we have some structure about some of the programs that we would offer, the services that were facilitated e- each week, uh, we still had um, staff meetings to go to and uh, still had reports to write, as well as, you know, I, I was a state-funded chaplain, so thank you very much. Your taxes have paid, paid for my <laughs> being a chaplain. But um, I was, I, I, uh, because the, the um, prison was so large, uh, I would make rounds uh, at times when I w- would I was able to just walk around and go uh, go outside where uh, on the yard uh, to just be able to talk to some uh, of the offenders that I wouldn't have been able to do um, because they, they're not going to come to they might not seek me out but I could at least try to engage with them and develop a, some rapport and relationship with them so if they did have a crisis then they knew who I was and we could go from there. Mm-hmm. The, best thing that that for me that came out of COVID was putting cer- chairs in a circle under a tree so mm. in front of the chapel yes. and, and we are so blessed to have a dedicated standalone building that is a chapel that you walk into it and you know you're in a chapel and um, it was built in 1985 and it's a lovely building and um, so so we we went through this period of time where we could have at most four people face to face Mm. and so we would put a circle of chairs out front under this tree and uh, invite people to to stop by and the chairs would stay full most days for several hours somebody would come walking by one person would stand up and say here come take my chair I've been here you can come have my place and and um it was there was a core group of people who would always show up, but then there were others who would who would cycle through and have conversation. And so I've continued that. I, I try at least several times a week to put those chairs out there and say the chapel is open if you want to stop by. And it, it's it's a dream really to be in a minimum security women's mm-hmm. facility because we don't we don't very often have fights or. Um, the danger level is just much lower than it is at, at some other facilities. The um, the responsiveness of the women to that hospitality is pretty amazing. Um, I, I think it's something that many of them have never experienced. Mm. Well, Jody, you had uh, mentioned that you were community funded, but Nancy, you mentioned that you were state funded. So yes. how, let's let's and you wanted to talk about that a little bit, Jody. Yeah, so. I did. I, state funded is less and less now. You find that less and less. The state decided that that uh, spending those resources on spiritual support uh, could be done without the state's dollar. Uh, when was that? Do you know? That, I think that was around uh, 2007 or eight. Really? It yeah, was I long, think that, it's a long. It's that, been a while. That sounds like what I had heard before. Uh, and so, but they, somebody had the genius idea of saying, "Well, if that person who's coming to serve in that position can can raise their own funds, you know, uh, then they can they can earn a salary, but they got to get out there and earn it by raising it themselves." That's that's basically what it means for community funded. So you have. It, it, at Avery Mitchell, I had a wonderful, and and I, I mean that with all the sincerity I can muster, uh, group that took it upon themselves to uh, solicit funds for that position to pay the salary for the chaplain. Uh, and it wasn't a lot of money, but it was it was something. And um, so, otherwise, they don't have any. Otherwise, they wouldn't have any any form of chaplaincy at all. No, nope, unless they could find a volunteer who would do it voluntarily. Um, and there are some volunteer chaplains in the uh, Department of Public Safety there in North Carolina. There are volunteers, Carolina. but they're still required to have the same. I mean, yes, you. they should have. They have, this same, they have to have the same qualifications, same education, same certifications and everything that we do, which we have to have the same thing Nancy had. Right. And then right. some. Yes, you did. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I'm also community funded, and and there's been a a women's prison in Black Mountain. I've lost track of the number of years, but somewhere around 40 years, there's been a, a women's prison here. And in 1998, a group of women were volunteers were over at the prison. It's just a little 80-bed facility, and there was a group of volunteers there helping the superintendent, what today is a warden, stuff some envelopes for something. And she got the the superintendent got a phone call saying that um, one of the residents had had a death in her family, and she had to go and make that notification. So she came back to the room with the volunteers and said, "I I need a I need a chaplain. I don't like doing that. It shouldn't be me doing that. We need a chaplain." They went out and started raising funds, and so there has been chaplaincy present at, presence at this women's prison um, since. 1999 wow and they they work really hard to to raise the money every year and used to be 20 hour chaplain and now I work full-time I work 40 hours a week and my sidekick Shannon Spencer works about 10 hours a week and you know I don't I don't take home boatloads of money but I feel very well compensated well you mentioned um Carol, uh, you were in minimum security? Yeah. Uh, talk about the different levels of security and how that influences what you do <laughs> as a chaplain. It's, it's really interesting to watch um, people. Occasionally we'll have people come, come from another custody level to work at minimum security. And, <laughs> in fact, Nancy came and helped us out. And, and just to watch the look yeah. on her face when she sees <laughs> people are out just walking around from building <laughs> to building unescorted and, and uh, you know, come walking in the chaplain, chapel, you don't know they're coming, or, or which is very different very from what different. you had experienced. High different. security, yes. Or even medium. Or even right. medium, that's right. Medium would be the same in terms mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. I remember going thing. to visit you and, and getting caught in that airlock the door shuts behind you and in front of you and you're in that space and you're like, Oh, is anybody going to let me out? <laughs> yes. A lot more clanging doors yep. in uh, the medium and, and the close custody facilities. Close custody is uh, our state's way of saying um, uh, maximum unit or mm-hmm. high security prison. Yeah. But it, it is quite different in terms of the security level and what, um, we know the the I think too the the like you were saying the amount of violence that happens mm-hmm. we we had fights break out regularly in in these security le- the levels that I was in so I um, I depended a lot on the st- on the uh, staff. Yes, unfortunately, uh, one of the most influential presences presences <laughs> um, in the prisons is gangs. And uh, they're vying for the allegiance of those who come in new. And once they get their allegiance, then they begin to form and to operate in opposition to other gangs. And it's a reality. And and I don't think it's, uh, you know, in, incorrect or inaccurate to say that that may be about the greatest threat uh, in the inside the prisons today is the gang presence. And you'd think, no, not in North Carolina. Oh, yeah, in North Carolina. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, um, and, and the worst ones. Yeah, yeah. the wor- that's, that's right. That's right. And the things that they, um, that they do and the way they work to um, stifle the other gangs and, and uh, to establish their dominance inside the institution is it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. But you know, they've got all day to, to think about it and – and if you, if that's one of the things about the vocational programs, uh, we mentioned programs in custody. Um, there are vocational pri- uh, programs within the prison that will help someone establish a trade, so that if and when they do get out of prison, they will have a way to uh, make a living. Hopefully, of course, they carry with them the stigma of having been incarcerated. Um, but those opportunities are available to them, and 
I, I was very impressed with the program staff and the way they work to empower the men to uh, learn and grow and learn a trade and become somebody, you know, and have mm-hmm. that self-esteem that goes along with that, you know, I, I can do this. I, th- I mean, including things like uh, HVAC systems. Yeah, yeah. And uh, where they can get out and get a nice-paying job. The women don't have all that. Really? I'm so glad you said <laughs> I'm that. I'm just saying. No, I'm glad you said it. It's important to be said. So, uh, well, well, did it make any difference, I mean, the, the, the levels and how you were a chaplain? Oh, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah. Where, where, where do we begin on that? That's I, right. Uh, it's. Um, I have been at, at all the levels uh, when I was at ser- when I was serving at uh, the high security prison. I was also uh, chaplain of the minimum unit of, for men, so I ha- I could see both um, the um, amount of uh, pre- preparation going on in the minimum units for people getting out. There was some preparation, maybe not enough, but there was at least some uh, work done. Uh, in programs to to prepare people to say there you know you are and where are you going to live and how are you going to make a living and those kinds of things that and some some uh, some intentionality about that it's harder in the in the high security prisons because they may not get out for 20 25 mm-hmm. 40 years or for life and so the then it then it, then the question is how can they find meaningful life within these walls and what does that look like and for some they did find uh, find that they could learn how to be a librarian in the li- in the prison library or they could uh learn how to cook in the in the kitchen or there were things that, that they they discovered that at least gave them some meaning uh, and day-to-day work that was good but in a, in these big prisons there's not enough work for the numbers that we have. And so it, 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 there's a lot of idle time. Mm-hmm. There's not enough programs. There's not enough uh, uh, work um, with this kind of skill training that you're talking about that is so good, but there, there, it, it, it serves a small minority you're within, right. within that whole system. Well, we have to be honest, y'all. It's all about money. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's only so much money to go around. And it was my experience from my perspective, and perhaps it's a skewed perspective, that they're inmates. Why should we spend money on them? I actually heard people in our community say that. And, and you know, I'm like, yeah, but they're coming back to our community. That's why people and don't understand. And the majority are, yes. They, they don't understand that. The majority are coming back into our community. Exactly. And how do we want them to come back? Exactly. And that's what I say all the time. say, if this woman is going to come and be my next-door neighbor, and she could, yes. I want her to be the ne- best neighbor she can be. So what can we do to help her be a good neighbor? Exactly. Mm. And, and that's that's how I try to look at We We have a transition program within our chaplaincy um, program at the prison mm-hmm. and and um the the reason I started that was because I kept seeing so so to come to minimum security a woman has to be within five years of release and so we get a lot of people who are there for a very short time and then we get people that that might be there that whole five years and I kept seeing the people there for five years for two years they would languish because uh, there wasn't anything for them to do. There right. was not, you You couldn't be on work release. You couldn't have uh, community passes. You could, there were so many things, so many programs there weren't, they were not invited to be involved in because it was, it was, they were too far out. And I said, well, this has got to change. This is crazy. Too far out from two, release. Two oh, years. Oh, oh, yeah. Two to sit around for two years and do nothing when some of them have been in those training programs at a maximum or a medium facility and they have been busy all day, every day. And then they come here and they're, they're sitting, mm-hmm. they're looking at God's beautiful world mm-hmm. because it's a beautiful place, but nothing to do. And so I, I started this, um, working with them for, for one year on just some life skills. Because what I saw was they were the very people who were going to go out on work release positions, but they hadn't had any transition 
to get there. To prepare so them. we we started trying to prepare them to to walk out into the world um, to just just you know sit down and have a mock interview with them because most of them have never had a well they've they've made money but they've not had a legal job <laughs> and and so they may never have had a job interview before and so just they've they've never had a a bank account they've never um had communication skills classes and things like that so we just really started working on some of those things well it's very demanding uh and challenging uh experience what did you find most difficult i think for me uh it's probably having you're trying to do ministry individual ministry largely and with some small groups of different faith groups and different people from different places with different perspectives and trying to squeeze all of that in in the midst of a bureaucracy and it that's a real thing the uh, it is the division of prisons there are mo- many levels of uh, responsibilities in there and uh, you have yes. to you have to meet all of these expectations uh, and work within these narrow, more and more narrow. Let me say it that way. Yes. Uh, boundaries in order to perform ministry. I mean, person to person, heart to heart ministry, and it, it, it's virtually impossible. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. So, mm-hmm. what do y'all think? You know, I think that it, that we are. Uh, we're, it's vividly portrayed in the in the prison system how much we are caught within the policies and uh, uh, and laws that that come from uh, the the people the administrative administrative people in the s- state office, and they're they're not necessarily coming down to say, well, you chaplains, why don't you uh, tell us what would be helpful in terms of how we can support your work, or saying that to correctional officers or to a program staff. How can we support what you're doing? Instead, I think we all feel caught. It's not just the offenders that feel caught. Mm. All of us, staff and volunteers as well, yeah. because they have uh, uh, lots of restrictions on uh, on their on what they. Uh, when they can come and how they, uh, 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 what are the rules about all that? And so I found that it w- it wears you down, mm-hmm. and it's not uh, unlike what other people feel in their uh, professions, like medical staff, who are feel burdened by the institutional demands and the system that is so very. Uh, inadequate to meet the needs of what we're doing. There are terrific staff out there, mm-hmm. and there and they and there. I've met lots of. I worked with lots of staff members that did everything they could that was within policy that they could uh, they could say yes to, or they could uh, open up a door for uh, so, some situation. And um, and it. It was heartbreaking to realize how many restrictions are placed on us in the name of control. And you do want to have a measure of control in these institutions, but sometimes it is, it is to the detriment of the, all the people who are, who are in that place um, day in and day out. I don't think we can ignore the fact that those rules matter. They do. Because uh, 2016 and 2017 were very difficult years in the North Carolina Department of Public Safety That's right. and Prison Division of Prisons because we had staff members who were killed in the line of duty. Um, and Two different. Two, two different, different institutions, yeah. And, and uh, one young lady who was killed and, uh, in a brutal fashion. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult. And, and then... I don't know if it was the next year. I believe it was, it was. that same year. Oh, it was only about year. three months later. Then yeah. there was a large scale uh, Pasquatank. Thing to, yeah, down at Pasquatank, where several people were killed and staff members were killed. Staff members. Yeah. And uh, so, it, when you think about it from the perspective of you know, will I come home tonight? Mm-hmm. Right. You have these people who are doing this work, and by the way, it's gotten a little better here recently with the pay and the incentives mm-hmm. for the staff. 
but uh, it's been really, I wouldn't do it for what they make. I'll just be honest with you. Um, and and I, I think we, you're, you're right. We do need to re- remember that structure is good for all of us. Right. And that it, it is especially good for a, a lot of the uh, uh, of the offenders who never have had enough structure in their life, and they've discovered that having a structure has actually helped them on their path. Uh, and it, but it's a kind it's a kind of structures that are in place, and whether they serve or whether they don't, and you know, and some of the things that that happen in terms of the, the gangs and. Uh, the violent outbreaks that happen regularly. It's understandable why there needs to be some measures of uh, of policies in place and security in place to uh, diminish those. But it is. But wh- what do we know? I think that that sometimes we don't ask the question. Wh- how how do we um, how do we curtail the violence? What what does promote a healthy a healthier atmosphere? What 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 is it we can do that is within our power to do? Right. So often it's more reactionary. It's more reactionary mm-hmm. than right. it is. That's, that's what happened in 2017. So you had this you had this outbreak of violence on the coast. Well, the ripple effect from from oh, this that's right high security men's prison on the coast that affected women in a minimum security facility in western north carolina it was it was so hard because it's a fear-based system Mm -hmm. yes and so when the reaction is every everybody has to follow the same rules same guidelines same you know you know lock your scissors up in a I just do everything within my power not to pair, use a pair of scissors ever again because it's too much trouble to sign, it, sign a pair of scissors out and unlock it, get them out, sign them out, use them and put them back in there and lock them up. And it's crazy. I understand it, but we get treated, the, these women, they get treated as if they were members of a violent gang on the, on the East Coast. Right. And, and so that's really hard. Yep. And everything is it's right. it's just like any other you know you you mentioned medical and everything it's 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 litigious it's this it's the same thing that that people across the country deal with day in and day out that affects affects jobs when you're always afraid there's going to be a lawsuit. I mean every every move you make has to be thought of. Is somebody going to sue me if I do this? Right. And I think the system has become. Um, damaged by that. Yeah. I mean, that's the only word I could come up with is to think about how that inhibits uh, the free work. Of course, you say free, they're in prison, <laughs> right. but I don't mean for them so much as the provisions for them. We have to work hard to to uh, get these provisions in place right. so that we can serve them and serve their spiritual needs Yeah, and um, whatever that might mean. When you look, when you look at the system, if you look at it from a family systems mindset, the the largest part of the system are the people who are incarcerated, and so most of the people who are incarcerated are not particularly healthy people. A lot of mental health issues, a lot of anger, a lot of of disease, and so if you from that family systems standpoint. You have a you have a pretty sick system, mm-hmm. and it, it tends to attract mm-hmm. some not so healthy people to work inside that system. I am so grateful to be working in a place right now where where we we really have a pretty solid team of people who seem to want are there because they they want to make a difference. Right, but I've seen it where it wasn't that way, and well, they're not doing it for the money. No, they're not <laughs> doing it for no. the money. Um, in, in, and so it, it can be a place where people's, I was talking to a man this morning who worked in another state as a correction officer. And he said, I was one of those people who did that because I wanted to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yes. thank you so much for your service Amen. because it's, it's hard because, because then you have all these other rules about undue familiarity and don't don't be standing around having a conversation with people for more than two seconds that's right i mean it's it's hard it is hard 
Well, as a final question, because we just scratched the surface and we can talk a long time, but for this interview, uh, as a final question, talk about uh, some of the meaningful experiences you had, uh, some of the things you've learned about being a chaplain in a prison. There's so many meaningful experiences. There are a lot. It's hard to, it's hard to pin one down. Uh, but I will, I'll share one, uh, a young man who had spent quite a few years in prison, who worked in my chapel, uh, who really wanted to change and demonstrated that he was committed to change and having his life changed, who eventually got out of prison and went and began to serve in ways, uh, not in a prison, but to serve people uh, in like in a homeless shelter first and then in another, in another arena later, who I know, I know this young man is doing well. I just know yeah. it in my heart. We don't have the privilege of being able to follow up with uh, uh, our offenders mm. a lot mm, directly right. because we're not allowed to do that officially. But uh, I, I think it happens, but it happens in an informal way a lot of times. But um, I, I just, to me, that's the fulfilling part of it, knowing that uh, it's that what do they call them? Starfish on the beach guy, you know? <laughs> well, I made a difference to that one. So, and honestly, we can all say uh, we don't have volumes of success stories. I don't. Right. I didn't witness volumes of success stories of lives being changed and turned around. But if I could touch one life and make a difference, it was worth every bit of the effort that I expended trying to be helpful. Those people who work in our offices are probably the people that we, we try not to get so close to, but you can't help it because they're there every day. And and as you were saying that, I was seeing faces of, <laughs> of those people who've they've worked for us. And, and these are these are people who do things like run around and put things up on bulletin boards and um, any manner of other things that we need them to do. And... I, I I know the whole thing about not. Yeah, I know I know I know those rules, but um, with this transitional mentoring program, what it's allowed us to do and 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 have sanctioned somewhat, is is to follow up with people, um, after they're out in the community mm. and really try to be very careful with that and um let let people in the community do most of the the face to face but i always tell people my phone you are allowed to call me i'm not going to call you but you call me i'm here in the office you call me if if you're doing great but call me if you're messing up mm. call me and let me know yes. if you're having a hard time because uh, we haven't even really ta- touched on drugs much at all, but that's the 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 main reason people are in prison mm-hmm. is because of because of drug addiction, and yes. that relapse starts to happen in their in in their thinking before they ever even pick up a substance. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's they start unwinding, and and I'm telling them if if you start feeling yourself if you're lonely, you're on the way to relapse. Pick up mm. the phone. I said, "This phone, the phone at the prison rings twenty four hours a day, and somebody will answer it." Mm-hmm. And uh, the people that work at night, they'll talk to you. I know, and and they can they can talk you down off the ledge. And so, the uh, the just watching people watching, I think. Okay, here's my real answer. My very favorite thing. <laughs> my very favorite thing is watching people who used to be residents at Western Correctional Center for Women come back in as volunteers. Oh, that's, that's my beautiful. favorite. That's redemption right there. Yeah, it is. And and you're you, and what y'all have named as being touchstones on the journey of uh, the people that we are with and. My story um, happened rather early in my chaplaincy, and it happened um, when there were choir members that were rehearsing in the chapel, 
getting ready for the Sunday morning worship service, and a f- and a fight broke out, and there were fists going into faces, and so I yelled for them uh, to stop, and they ignored me, and because I'm five foot two, I decided, well, I'll jump on a chair and make myself big, and <laughs> yell louder. <laughs> so I did that, jumped up, yelled for them to stop. It didn't matter. So they ignored me, and I so I ran to the phone, called for security to come, and um, within seconds, there were uh, security in the chapel. They broke up the fight. The um, the 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 men who had st- who were in the fight were taken to solitary confine were you know handcuffed and taken to solitary confinement, and then uh, the the others left and. When all was restored to calm, I was sitting in my office just going, oh, 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 my, oh, what, it, what has just happened? Oh, you know, this was, this, <laughs> this was scary. Oh, it's okay. It was just a, a, you know, teachers see this, schoolyard brawls, you know, they go home safely. You know, I, this was nothing. I was trying to talk myself into it being okay, and we're now at peace. And the lieutenant, who was in charge of the security on the floor, he was the one in, that, that helped stop the fight. And he came to my office door and he said, you don't like it, but you need me. And I don't like it, but I need you. Mm. Mm. And I said, Lieutenant, you're right. I need you to, and, and your officers to provide safety and security on this floor. But what do you need me for? And he said, I need you to keep me from using undue physical force. Mm. I need you to teach me another kind of force. Mm. And for me, that became my vocational calling, mm. was what, how is it that, that I can live into being someone who uses another kind of force? And what is the force of making amends and forgiveness and second chances and redemption and the possibility for transformation and a new way of being. Mm-hmm. So I, I, um, I found my, my calling in those lieutenant's words. Well, this has been an amazing and wonderful conversation I am deeply thankful to each of you for the work you have done and, Carol, for the work you're continuing to do. Uh, I hope that we can have another conversation sometime because uh, there's a whole lot more we can talk about. Uh, but thank you each for being here today. Thank you for what you've shown us. Uh, help us understand. Uh, and so blessings on each of you for that. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening. And for your support, blessings. Say the words from my mouth, speak your peace. Say the words from my mouth.